fools will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right, welcome Christian Israel, white nationalists, truth lovers around the world, and those of you who appreciate the Bible. Today we're going to do a follow-up show on what we did last week. Last week we proved conclusively that the Jews and the Roman uh, versus the Romans that the Jews are the ones who killed Christ and not the Romans. Uh, I think we detailed at least forty-four points, which all showed that the Jews, you know, the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes and uh, various hangers-on who were the ones who wanted Jesus dead, get him out of the way so that their stranglehold over the people in Judea could continue because he was a threat to their authority, uh, not to the authority of Rome, but to the authority of the Sanhedrin. So we proved that conclusively without any shadow of a doubt. So we're just talking about, we just cited a bunch of scriptural passages which uh, tell us that the Jews did this, the Jews did that, the Jews conspired to do this, the Jews conspired to do that. And in every case, Pontius Pilate was willing to let Yahshua go because he could find no fault in him. So how many times do you have to say, I find no fault in him before people stop believing that you're guilty, (laughs) right? So, of course, we're dealing with Judaism, which is nothing but lies. And there's no way that you can deal with a a systemic group of liars such as the Jews, such as the rabbis of Judaism, the Talmudic rabbis. They must. They have to deny killing Jesus because they they can never allow anybody to think they're guilty of anything. In fact, uh, just like in contrast to the Old Testament Israelites who are always uh, being professed guilty and admitted their own guilt and sin before Yahweh. He was constantly punishing them for their sins. Yet, in total contrast to this, the modern Jews never are guilty of anything. They can't do anything wrong. Everything is somebody else's fault. You know, just like a teenager who is caught red-handed and says, No, I didn't do that. That's exactly how Judaism operates, and it's just, it just absolutely amazes me. It stuns me, actually, that anybody believes their lies, because it's so obvious. All you have to do is study the, the Word, as we proved last week, study history, etc., etc., and there is no, no way that the Jews aren't guilty, all right? So what we're going to talk about today is the way... The, the way the trial of Yahshua was conducted. And again, 
the Romans had nothing to do with the trial of Yahshua at all. It was simply the Sanhedrin and the Jews who were guilty of it. And so I just put the link in the chat room. And we're going to follow these. this article entitled, 12 Reasons Jesus' Trial Was Illegal. This is from the Restored Church of God. And they have this question here. This is part one. And uh, I'll post part two when we get to it. And in addition, I have a, a little booklet in front of me. The Inquisition and Crucifixion of Jesus the Nazarene. A Critical Legal Commentary by Fraser Marks, Esquire, 1997. Now, I think, just from the publication information, he was probably a member of Pete Peters' organization, although it doesn't say so explicitly here in the booklet. The only reason I have for saying that. It's been a while since I've read this. I've read through this. Anyway, the book was published in La Porte, Colorado. And that's where Pete Peters' uh, organization was based, and it still is today, Scriptures for America. It's still there today. So, but it doesn't really mention Scriptures for America in the credits for this publication. However, Nevertheless, it is a very good booklet. Anyway, and if we have time, which I think we will, we'll get into this booklet as well. And this is, I I looked for this online. I could only find the cover. I could not find a a free online version of it. So let's get started here. The 12 Reasons Jesus' Trial Was Illegal, Part 1. Have you considered that? Even by man's laws, Jesus' trial was illegal? <laughs> Here are 12 reasons. It is just, Now, wouldn't the person who wanted somebody out of the way be the one most interested in getting rid of that person? Isn't that uh, generally the uh, attitude that all cops and investigators, even Sherlock's Holmes, who had the motive? What was the motive? I mean, if we take this situation as an actual legal trial, Jewish denials are an absolute farce. An absolute farce. Well, let's continue. It is just after midnight on the Passover of A.D. 31. I think they're wrong about the the year. I think it's 33 A.D. Because there was... It's very interesting... Just before the birth of Christ, there was a lunar eclipse in Palestine. And just after the, uh, I think just after the crucifixion in 33 AD, there was a, a lunar eclipse. And Josephus actually mentions that eclipse in his book, The Antiquities of Judah. So he, he mentions both of those eclipses, and it's very well known now that those eclipses there was an eclipse happened just before the birth of Christ and an eclipse that happened right around the death of Christ. So those pinpoint the years and as being 1 BC for the birth and 33 AD for the death. And all in all, he lived about 33 and a half years. 
So let's continue. It is just after midnight on the Passover of A.D. I'm going to correct it here, 33. An ominous gathering of people, yeah, the uh, Hiram mob, the George Soros Hiram mob, Antifa, uh, wielding swords and clubs, has assembled in the midst of Jesus and his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Their intent mostly unknown. A man named Judas steps forward from the multitude and greets Jesus with a kiss, saying, Good evening, Master. Okay, uh, an ominous gathering. So an ominous gathering doesn't mean a whole lot of people. It doesn't say multitude. And we're not given any indication that there was a multitude of people at uh, at Gethsemane. But... The author says here, the Mount of Olives. I'm not sure that's where Jesus, uh, where Judas greeted Jesus with a kiss. I thought that was in the Garden of Gethsemane, so I hope this uh, author isn't wrong about this, but let's continue. And he says, Good evening, Master. Jesus responds, My friend, why are you here tonight? Of course, he's being sarcastic. Immediately, several members of the large crowd move forward and seize Jesus, prompting one of his disciples to grab a sword and strike one of the attackers. Put down your sword, Jesus exclaims, and it's no value. Those who rely on swords will die with their swords in hand. They are of no use. If I wanted to, I could call upon my father and send more than 70,000 angels to free me. But if this were to happen, the scriptures would not be fulfilled. Uh, okay, I know, yeah, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But there's no reference here. I'm I'm wondering if this is an exact quote of the scriptures. This this article may not, it may be tainted. Uh, So, but let's continue. And if this gets uh, any worse, uh, I'll just go right to the Inquisition and Crucifixion of Jesus, the book. So, and he should have had a reference. He does for have a reference for Matthew twenty six thirty one a little later on. But let's continue. Yeah, and uh, Yahshua even said to Peter, you know, don't, don't try to prevent this uh, event from happening because the scriptures must be fulfilled. I have to do this, and there's no power on earth that can prevent it. Okay, not even Pontius Pilate, although he did all that he possibly could. Then Jesus says to the crowd, Why have you seized me tonight with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Did you not see me many times teaching in the temple? Why did you not lay hands on me then? Now that uh, that verse I remember, so maybe it's not an exact quote they have just above here. Maybe it's a paraphrase. Maybe, or maybe it's a uh, verse that I didn't quote last week. Maybe because we have four Gospels and one of the Gospels may say something about 70,000 angels. But let's go on. At that very moment, Jesus' disciples, his close friends, who have been with him for the better part of three and a half years, flee. Every last one of them forsook him. As it is written, quote, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad, unquote. Matthew twenty-six thirty-one. And, of course, the sheep is the entire Israel race that we have been scattered everywhere, all over the planet. 
Jesus is eventually taken to the place of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas. There, a sizable group of scribes and Pharisees is anxiously assembled. For years, Jesus' popularity among the common people of Judea has threatened their positions of authority. Now they finally have a chance to try Jesus and convict him of a crime, one punishable by death. You are probably at least somewhat familiar with the rest of the story. Jesus is tried, convicted, and put to death, crucified on a stake. But have you ever closely examined the court proceedings leading to Jesus' crucifixion? Have you considered that even by man's laws, Jesus' trial was illegal? Yeah, we have considered it. We in identity have. Whether any Judea Christians ever thought about that, I don't know. First heading, commonly held views of the trial. Many believe and try to prove that Jesus was legally put to death. For example, in his 1916 book, The Prosecution of Jesus, Richard Wellington Husband, a lawyer, wrote, quote, The arrest was legal. The hearing by the Sanhedrin was legal. The course of the trial in the Roman court was legal. The conviction was legal and was justified, unquote. Uh, I'm sure the Jews must have hired him to write that book. Here is how Husband supports his assertions. Quote, the arrest was legal for it was conducted by the proper officers acting under instruction from the Sanhedrin. There was no illegality in the circumstances under which the arrest was affected. The hearing by the Sanhedrin was legal for it was merely a preliminary hearing and was not a formal trial. The course of the trial in the Roman court was legal for it harmonized with the procedure shown in the sources to be pursued by governors of provinces in hearing criminal cases, unquote. So states husband. Then also a quote, the conviction was legal and was justified provided the evidence was sufficient to substantiate the charges and the records do not prove the contrary, unquote. Well, nobody knows what went on in behind closed doors which is a proof of its illegality because uh, trials were taking, uh, taking place in public and in the daytime, not at nighttime as this was. So, I mean, you really have to stretch the truth, Mr. Husband, to make any claims to the contrary. So the author continues, as you can see, According to husband, the entire process leading to the death of Christ was legal. And to him, the Bible does not provide sufficient evidence to indicate otherwise, as he states that other, quote, records do not prove the contrary, unquote. Similarly, Max Rodin, R-A-D-I-N, a former professor and author of the book, The Trial of Jesus of Nazareth, believes the accounts in the Bible are not credible since Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not physical eyewitnesses to the secretive proceeding. Well, yeah, there's proof right away. Secretive. You can't have a secret trial under Mosaic law. Of course, we're not dealing with Mosaic law. We're dealing with Talmudic law. And the Talmudists are capable of anything and will uh, declare themselves right and just with uh, any proceedings they can concoct. And this, that's what this is, a concoction of a trial. So, uh, so continue. Yeah, they were not physical eyewitnesses. That's correct. 
The author, however, does not take into account the possibility that Christ could have explained everything to his disciples when he was resurrected from the dead. Jesus was a personal eyewitness to the trial and could have accurately conveyed everything to his followers to record in the pages of the Bible. Of course, the author also does not believe that scripture is inspired. Later in the book, Radin, or Radin, R-A-D-I-N, Radin, provides insight into a common trial in Judea during Christ's times. Quote, We are, most of us, familiar with the procedure of criminal investigations. The accused person is arrested, arraigned before a committing magistrate, specifically accused and formally tried. He may, and he generally does, appeal to a higher court if he is convicted. All these things take time, and there is almost necessarily an interval of weeks and months between the later stages of the procedure. But above all, the procedure is strictly regulated by law, and any serious deviation is not merely an irregularity, but will probably prevent punishment from being inflicted, unquote, just as we have in our tradition if the court does something irregular or illegal that nullifies the court's action. I mean, this is a Christian jurisprudence, Western jurisprudence as well. Several, okay, by the above description alone, Jesus' trial was fraudulent. All of the above-mentioned events take time, and usually lots of it. Radin himself admits this, yet the trial of Jesus was completed about nine hours after he was arrested. And due to the privacy of the proceedings, there were no witnesses to testify on behalf of Jesus. But there were many witnesses to testify against him. How many court cases are you aware of that are similar to this? Well, it's very commonplace today. <laughs> when, when was this written? Uh, since the Jews have corrupted our court system just as the Sanhedrin corrupted their system. All right, I can't find a date for this uh, the publication of this article. So it's uh, up, up for grabs when this was published. But Maybe this was before, or maybe these people aren't aware how the Jews have corrupted our legal system here today. In fact, the Judean parallels, in fact, the, uh, the way in which the Edomites, the Herodians, Sanhedrin, corrupted the politics of Judea in those days is but a, 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 a presage of what's happening today on a world scale. In those days, the scribes and Pharisees just ruled over Judea. Today, they rule over the world, and hence the entire planet has been corrupted by them. So let's continue. Several pages later in the book, Radin attempts to reconcile his description of a lengthy criminal investigation with Jesus' nine-hour process. Quote, Mark's version, even by his own testimony, cannot be more than a guess. Instead of a hurried night meeting, a harsh and brief interrogatory, a disregard of established rules of evidence and procedure, the trial may have been, may have been formally correct. But there's no guarantee that it was, so Mr. Radin admits it.
And the judgment formally correct even from the point of view of an upright judge just through just though severe. As is the case with most scholars, Radin dismisses the Bible as a source of historically accurate information. He assumes that Mark guessed what may have happened and as such believes the investigation could have occurred some other way. Yet the accounts of the Bible are the only sources of information that cover the trial. One cannot justify his position based on another resource. He can merely render a guess or an assumption. When one believes what was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only one conclusion can be drawn. Christ's trial was illegal, even by men's standards, but not by Jewish standards. What's the charge? Some might wonder, why did the Jews deliver Jesus to the Romans to be killed? Could they not have put him to death themselves? A common view is that the Jews did not have the authority to execute criminals. Continuing the, the prosecution of Jesus, Mr. Husband states, quote, according to the common view, the right to try capital cases, cases involving the death penalty, and even the right to pronounce sentences still rested with the Sanhedrin, but the actual penalty could not be inflicted until the governor had given his sanction, unquote. And that is correct. That is 100% correct because the Romans reserved to themselves the authority to execute criminals, even though they would have, in this case, as we found out, Pontius Pilate had no choice but to accede to the demands of the Sanhedrin. Under his numerous protests, he had no choice for fear of an insurrection. So that was the only reason why Pilate succumbed to these illegal demands of the Sanhedrin. Continuing, those who believe Jesus' adversaries had no legal basis to execute him usually cite John 18.31, where Pilate, the Roman governor, said to the Jews, Take you him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Unquote. So this is their objection, right? Well, we don't want to try him because you won't let us put him to death. You know, We need to have some kind of public show trial which is essentially what they got. Lifted from its context, this verse does not appear to indicate that the Jews were unable to execute criminals. Yet the truth is that they did have the power to try, convict, and execute people, except in cases that involved treason or sedition against the Roman government. And, but, but Yahshua was not accused of treason or sedition against Rome. Only, only at the latter stages before Pilate did they even suggest and the only suggestion was whether or not he paid taxes or tribute to the Romans they only brought that up because they were desperate to kill him lifted from its context yeah so it is not lawful for us to put any man to death there you go and and that was true I think the the argument that they did not have that power is the correct uh, reasoning. But that doesn't mean the Sanhedrin didn't do it on the sly without Roman authorities knowing about it. 
and depending on whether the Roman governor was in town or not, okay? Lifted from its context, this verse does appear to indicate that the Jews were unable to execute criminals. Uh, yes, and he says, yet the truth is that they did have the power to try, convict, and execute people except for treason or sedition. Uh, I disagree with that statement. They, they, they were under the law of the Romans. They did not have that power to put a man to death, just as they, the, the gospel suggests. Anyway, consider the following. Stephen was accused of blasphemy and as a result was stoned to death by the Jewish authority, as described in the book of Acts 6, 11, the Romans were consulted in this execution, and there is no indication they disapproved. Yes, well, I covered this last week. The fact is that the Roman governor was out of town, was not present, and the Sanhedrin took advantage of that fact. And I believe there was even a trial of the executioners for because the Roman governor, upon his return, found out a bit about it, but I don't think there was any stern punishment inflicted on the Jews for that crime. But let's continue. On several occasions, the scribes and Pharisees sought to kill Jesus. Yes, we covered that last week. Mark 11, 18, 14, 1, Luke 19, 47, 22, 2, and John 10, 31. So, is the person who seeks to kill you the one most likely to either do it himself or hire somebody to do it? Or is the person who tries to save you <laughs> from a unjust trial more likely to be guilty of it? If this were illegal, it is doubtful they would have even attempted. No, this is this person is way too lenient on the Jews on the same. No, everything they did was illegal. They were constantly trying to get away with murder. And everything else. This is a very naive statement by the author. In one instance, elders of Judea brought before Jesus a woman who had been caught committing adultery and said, quote, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what say you? Unquote. John 8, 5. If the Jews did not have the authority to put this woman to death, Jesus might have replied, Aren't you aware of Roman law? You don't have the power to execute anyone. Unquote. That, again, this is a misreading of what happened because she required a trial. And his response to them was, which of you <coughs> is not guilty? Which of you, being innocent, should cast the first stone? And they did not want to give her a trial. If they could execute somebody under Mosaic law unless maybe she was caught in the act by some authority which the the whole account doesn't suggest that and, she, and he told her go and sin no more but these people did not have the a mob there's no mob that has the authority to execute people alright and so that's what was happening and Jesus put an end to it He simply said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast the stone at her. Verse 7. 
Jesus knew full well that the Jews were legally able to execute adulteresses and criminals. Yeah, they also had to give them a fair trial. Also, if it were not legal for the Jews to perform executions, consider what might have happened if word of this event reached Roman authority. Surely, if such were the case, the Jews would not have been so public about it. Well, again, yeah, when did this incident take place and where would the Romans be offended if this incident took place? Obviously, there are murders happening everywhere in Judea, okay? So the Romans can't be involved in everything, just like our law can't be, our authorities can't be involved in everything. So again, I, I think this is a kind of a naive commentary by the author. The fact is, if all of this were mosaic, the law of Yahweh, then none of these things could have happened. And very often, you know, I, I think the what the situation illustrates here with the public accusation and stoning of the prostitute, if that's, if that's what she was, who were her accusers? Her customers? <laughs> Did they want to kill her so they couldn't, she couldn't bring up their names at trial? You have to take that into consideration, and this author doesn't. So let's continue. So there's other things here involved that this author is not uh, addressing legally. Finally, the Apostle Paul was stoned by a crowd in Asia among whom were Jews. Now, was this within the authority of the Romans? Were the Romans aware of it? And even the stoning of Jesus, there should be another subject. I mean, I'm sorry, Jesus, Stephen. The stoning of Stephen would be another instance. Were the Romans involved or were the Jews simply so upset with Stephen that they defied Roman authority and went ahead anyway and risked the consequences? You have to take all these things into consideration. You can't assume that these Jews were willing to abide by the law which is what this author actually grants them. That's crazy. So let's continue. So then what is the statement in John 18.31 referring to? Quote, From the earliest period, the Roman governor took cognizance of all matters that had relation to the public security or the majesty of the empire. Consequently, there was not a time at which the Roman magistrate would not step in when a charge of treason was made or a seditious movement began. And that's, that's where Pilate was. He was in the middle of that. The case against Jesus is one especially in point, for the charge against him, treason, could under no circumstances be tried by any tribunal except that of the governor, unquote. And as we found out, Pilate was unwilling to try him for that offense. I find no fault in him. He says at least four times, if not more often. The Roman government would only intervene in criminal affairs when matters of treason, civil obedience, incitement to revolution, or attacks against Caesar were involved. In this case, did involve that, right? But who, who were the ones trying to usurp the authority? It wasn't Yahshua. It was the Sanhedrin. 
Otherwise, local administration was conducted by local officials and the regular courts of the conquered nations. Roman authorities were not involved in every criminal proceeding throughout the vast empire. Yeah, they couldn't possibly do that anyway. Jesus' opponents accused him of blasphemy, but since they did not want to execute him themselves, uh, of course they wanted to. John 7, 1. Jesus would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. The evidence is all over the place. He even admits it here that the Jews wanted to kill him. It wasn't Rome that wanted to kill him. But the highlight of the case, the, the, the dispute involving Pilate shows that there was a, a I scratch your back, you scratch mine relationship between the Sanhedrin, that is the Jews, the Edomite Jews, and Rome. Why? Because the Edomites instigated Roman occupation of Judea, of Judah, thus turning it into Judea. And the Romans in turn installed Antipater, Herod, and Herod's uh, siblings and uh, and friends and relatives as official uh, Roman agents. So there was a a cooperative element going on here between the two. Tremendous cooperation, okay? And the, and the Sanhedrin, who were, for the most part, non-Israelites, were there to control the people for their own purposes. But they were well aware that the Roman army stood by and could have killed them all if Pilate just got too angry with them. But let's continue. Jesus' opponents accused him of blasphemy. But blasphemy against whom? Not against Rome. Against the Talmud. But since they did not want, or they could not execute them, him themselves, they created charges of treason against him. That's correct. So this proves that uh, they were lying about him. And he implied earlier that they, they wouldn't do such a thing, that the Jews would not want to violate the laws of God. It's completely naive to suggest that. This way, the trial could be brought before Pontius Pilate, and in their minds, he and the Romans would be responsible for Jesus' death not them. Well, that's an ulterior motive then, isn't it? Events leading to Jesus' death. Before identifying the price, precise reasons Jesus' trial was illegal, it will be helpful to briefly examine events leading up to his crucifixion. We begin with Judas Iscariot striking a deal with the religious authorities, not with Rome. Quote, Then entered Satan into Judas, Surnamed Iscariot, meaning Ishkariot, man of Kariot, that town on the border of Idumea in southwestern Judah. Being the number of the number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he, and he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Luke 22, 3-6. So who's conspiring to get rid of Yeshua? The Jews or the Romans? Soon after Judas entered into a pact with the religious leaders, 
Jesus and his, he really doesn't get the fact that these people are illegitimate. He, the author just doesn't get it. Jesus and his faithful disciples ate their final meal together on Passover evening. Then Judas arrived, and I guess this reflects the general Judeo-Christian attitude that the Jews would not do anything unjust because they claim to follow the law of Moses, but they don't. Jesus told us very clearly. They have their own tradition, the tradition of the elders, and he said, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. That's absolute proof that they don't believe Moses. But I guess the average Judeo-Christian and the average Christian theologian doesn't get that. Anyway, next, the mob brought Jesus to the high priest's palace where, oh, okay, I missed one sentence here, sorry. After the arrest, a former high priest named Annas examined Jesus first, John eighteen thirteen, And here it needs to be pointed out that the only high priest, any, pre, any priest acceptable to Yahweh were the Levitical priesthood and or Israelites, descendants of Moses, Aaron, etc. And in some cases, kings could perform uh, religious ceremonies. But this was largely a Levitical process, and the Sanhedrin of Judah would assemble for such trials, if, if necessary. Usually a single judge would be able to do the job. But this was all according to Mosaic law, which was not happening here. We're talking about people appointed by non-Israelites as high priests, such as Annas and Caiaphas, and Herod even imported a Babylonian priest named Aninalus, A-N-E-N-A-L-U-S, I think is the spelling. Maybe they'll mention him here, Aninalus. And this is, and Annas examined Jesus first, John eighteen thirteen. So again, this was a private interview. Next, the mob brought Jesus to the high priest's palace. That's correct, the mob. Where Caiaphas, the high priest, the appointed high priest, the illegitimate high priest, installed either by Herod or by the Romans, and the Sanhedrin were gathered, Matthew 26, verses 57 through 58. Here, numerous false witnesses came before the Sanhedrin to give testimony against him. Eventually, Christ was condemned to death, apparently on the charge of blasphemy, verses 65 to 66. He was, they, the Sanhedrin, condemned him to death because he claimed to be the Son of God. That's it. That's the only charge. That's the only charge against him. The next morning, the Sanhedrin formally condemned Jesus in an attempt to make the previous evening's procedures legal. A multitude of people then led Jesus to Pilate, Luke 23.1, and pronounced different charges, saying, quote, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king? Verse 2. 
Notice they did not accuse Christ of blasphemy in front of Pilate. Instead, they charged him with treason against the Roman Empire. Yeah, they would have to change the accusation to get Pilate to agree. Pilate initially desired to free Jesus, but the people continued to put, no, not just initially, throughout the entire proceedings, the numerous times in all four Gospels, the three or four times that Yahshua was presented before Pilate, Pilate tried to free him without a shadow of a doubt, not just initially, throughout the entire proceedings, except when he became afraid. That's when Pilate relented. But the people, the mob, continued to push for his death, saying, quote, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place, unquote, verse 5. When Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, and Jewry should actually be Judea, teaching throughout Judea, which we know is a mixed multitude group of people, controlled by the Sanhedrin, controlled by our enemy, the Edomites. When Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he sent him to Herod. So here's another instance where Pilate tried to pass the buck because he didn't want the responsibility of executing an innocent person. The Romans were more honorable than the Sanhedrin. So Pilate sent him to Herod since Galilee was under his jurisdiction, verses 6 and 7. Herod was happy to see Jesus as he heard many things about him. He desired to see Jesus perform some miracles. But Jesus neither performed any miracles nor answered his questions. Silence of the Lamb. Meanwhile, the chief priests and scribes stood by and accused Jesus. After being mocked, he was quickly sent back to Pilate. I think Herod Antipas was also afraid. Continuing. Pilate sought to release Jesus once again, as he found no reason to condemn him to death. Quote, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof you accuse him. Likewise with Herod, and then he says, No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Unquote. Verses 14 through 16. (laughs) Okay. Totally verifying our argument from last week that the Jews were the only ones who had any motive to kill him. But the crowd cried out with a loud voice, Crucify him! Crucify him! Yeah, the Hiram mob, the crisis actors that the Jews always hire wherever they're in power. Verse 21. Pilate a third time responded to the multitude, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Verse 22. The people responded all the more loudly, Crucify him! Crucify him! The mob. Finally, Pilate gave in to the people's demands and delivered Jesus to be crucified. Keep in mind that this entire process lasted only about nine hours, from after midnight to around nine in the morning. 
Jesus was seized and tried, condemned and crucified, all within a matter of nine hours. Now that's a point of illegality. At three in the afternoon, Jesus was speared at his side and killed, 1934. Again, this is... The order of events is incorrect here. He died. He died before the spear penetrated his side. John 1934. In that short period of time, the world eliminated the Savior. The world? The world did? (laughs) What? Boy, this person is making excuses for the Jew. This guy is a total universalist. With this backdrop, we are now ready to examine 12... Uh, there were people in the world that never even heard of Jesus. <laughs> How can they be accused of killing Jesus or eliminating the Savior? Who's Savior? He only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He only came for Israel and no other people. This shows how skewed the modern gospel is. With this backdrop, we are now ready to examine 12 paramount reasons for the arrest, trial, and conviction of Jesus Christ that these, <coughs> excuse me, were illegal. Excuse me, one second. Okay, back at you. All right, so, yeah, we're, we may be still having problems. Yeah, okay, uh, Stan Coop was complaining yesterday about not being able to address Roger. That you have to go to his Jitsi studio, and you can enter his studio live on Roger's sales show, okay? So, uh, the... The chat and go or chatango page we have in Eurofolk Radio, uh, Roger does not enter that, so he won't be seeing those kind of comments unless he deliberately goes there. So, getting back to our situation. So, I mean, the the universalism of this author is just very, very striking and really detracts from the article. Anyway, let's continue. So, What are the reasons? Twelve paramount reasons. First reason, recall that Judas was bribed to betray Jesus in the absence of the crowds who favored him. The plan was to seize Jesus in the dark of night, sentence him just before sunrise to make everything appear legal, transport him to Pilate, stir up a mob of people to condemn him, and crucify him in the morning before those who supported him were aware. Yeah, there you go. Isn't that how Jewish justice works today, right? That's exactly how it works today. The only thing they didn't do was stage a, a, a fake, uh, a fake uh, incident where Jesus was present but not guilty, you know, or blamed, or blamed uh, a follower of Jesus of something by staging an event. Okay, you know, they, they hadn't thought of that yet in those days. Who constituted the crowd of people who arrested Jesus? The answer leads to the first blunder in Jesus' arrest, trial, and conviction. Jesus was arrested illegally. Thank you. Any trial may be dismissed as a mistrial or illegal. 
if there is prejudice against the individual being tried on the part of those participating, yeah, I mean, all the accusers need to be interrogated as well, you know, re- redirected, <laughs> right? Nothing like that happened. The accused must be given full recourse of law to be able to sufficiently present his side. Yeah. We must have our day in court unless the Jews are in charge because they make up law constantly and then they will stage show trials as the Anti-Defamation League or the the Anglo-Defamation League because their whole thrust is to defame us Anglo-Saxons and create non-law by which they can put us in jail or even to execute us uh, completely outside of the law, okay? So Jesus, however, was both arrested and tried by those prejudiced against him and was not allowed opportunity to present his case. Further, his judges were the same individuals who bribed Judas. (laughs) Oh, well, that shouldn't matter. Surely one cannot say these people were impartial. Impartial? Is Judaism impartial? In addition, Jesus Jesus was arrested secretly at night and was not formally, there was a bang on the door in the middle of the night and was not formally charged of any offense. Judas simply pointed out Jesus and a crowd arrested him. There was no legal basis for this. In his book, Criminal Jurisprudence of the Ancient Hebrews, Samuel Mendelssohn, who is probably a Jew, states, quote, the testimony of an accomplice, in this case Judas, is not permissible by rabbinic law. Well, by Mosaic law. But by Talmudic rabbinical law, it is. Now, sir, this is doublespeak by Mr. Mendelssohn because it's quite obvious that the Jews have staged show trials throughout history, and uh, they don't abide by the Mosaic Law anyway. The Talmud is not Mosaic Law. And no man's life, nor his liberty, nor his reputation can be endangered by the malice of the one who has confessed himself a criminal. Well, that's, that's introducing a whole new concept here, one who has confessed himself a criminal. <coughs> And that does not apply here because Yahshua did not confess to anything. So this statement is really not relevant. And any statement by a Jew always contains uh, red tape, right? And, uh, and all kinds of incidentals that are not relevant to the case, as we just found out. Since Judas accepted a bribe from a judge, certainly Judas would be considered a criminal. Okay, so... Uh, even uh, Mendelssohn's statement still doesn't apply because Judas did not publicly confess himself to be a criminal. The Sanhedrin knew he was, <laughs> right? And so were they because they accept, they paid the bribe. So the criminals are the Sanhedrin and Judas. Since Judas Judas accepted a bribe from a judge, certainly Judas would be considered a criminal. And since Jesus' judges judges bribed Judas, they would be considered criminals as well. 
This alone should have led to a mistrial, but no. Pilate wasn't apprised of any of this. Second reason. Jesus was examined by Annas in a secret night proceeding, John 18, 12 through 14 and 19 through 23. According to the Talmud, the Sanhedrin is forbidden from convening between the time of the evening and morning sacrifice. So even according to their own law, which is not the Mosaic law, the Sanhedrin violated Talmudic law. In the book, Jesus Before the Sanhedrin, M. M. Lebanon states that, quote, no session, including a preliminary examination of the court, could take place before the offering of the morning sacrifice, unquote. So we know that the Jews were so anxious <clears throat> to get rid of Messiah that they violated their own law. Of course, this is nothing new. Anybody who understands Judaism is they constantly violate their own law, and they make up law as they go along. Furthermore, quote, an accused man was never subjected to private or secret examination, or shouldn't be, <laughs> right? Oh, how about the Nuremberg trials, where German officers and men had their testicles smashed, their, their uh, relatives threatened, etc., etc.? That's Jewish law for you, folks as stated in Institutions de Moise by J. Salvador. Okay, so again, but these Talmudic laws only apply to Jews. They have one law for Jews and another law for non, for the Goyim. The Goyim do not benefit from Jewish law. They can treat us as they will, tyrannically. Third reason. The indictment against Jesus was false. That's why a fair trial needed to take place. The, the, the Sanhedrin, we're not going to allow that to happen. In the book, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Alfred Edersheim states that, quote, the Sanhedrin did not and could not originate the charges, unquote. Yeah, well, the Sanhedrin originated charges. <laughs> they uh, put the man on trial at the wrong time of day. They bribed a false witness, etc., etc. I mean, all this evidence is in the scriptures, all of which proves that the trial was illegal. Continuing. But as we saw, the Sanhedrin did so in the case against Jesus. Alexander Taylor Innes, I-N-N-E-S, in the trial of Jesus Christ, reveals, quote, Until the witness spoke and spoke in the public assembly... The prisoner was scarcely or never an accused man. When they spoke and the evidence of two agreed together, it formed a legal charge, libel or indictment, as well as the evidence for its truth, unquote. In a correctly conducted procedure, the evidence of the leading witnesses constituted the charge. But with Jesus, no witnesses and therefore no charges, were presented at the outset of the proceedings, or publicly. They were only presented in the dead of night, and the, the charge by those hired false witnesses, it clearly says they were false witnesses, hired by the Sanhedrin in Scripture, so we know that those were false witnesses. Those in opposition to Jesus, including those who would be in the court, simply arrested him. They then needed to find witnesses, false ones, 
Fourth reason. The Sanhedrin court illegally held its trial before sunrise. Annas's preliminary examination of Jesus resulted in no evidence. But instead of dismissing the case, the Sanhedrin proceeded to hold an illegal court. Mendelssohn reveals why it was illegal. Quote, Criminal cases can be acted upon by the various courts during the daytime only, and by the lesser Sanhedrins from the close of the morning sacrifice till noon, and by the great Sanhedrin till evening, unquote. So he's citing Jewish law, Talmudic law, some of which is based on Mosaic law, right? Uh, it's patently obvious that the Talmudic rabbis want to claim that they hold to Mosaic tradition. So they lift Mosaic tradition and apply it in their own way. And a legal proceeding would, would only apply to a Jew, but not to a Goy. The Jewish Mishnah states, quote, let a capital offense be tried during the day, but suspend at night, unquote. Moses Maimonides explains why trials are to be held during the daylight. Quote, the reason why the trial of a capital offense could not be held at night is because the examination of such a charge is like the diagnosing of a wound. In either case, a more thorough and searching examination can be made by daylight, unquote. Of course, this is Talmudic reasoning. There's nothing about this in scripture. Convicting someone of a crime punishable by death was very serious business. It required those deciding the fate of the accused to be at their best mental state. <laughs> is there such a thing for a Jew? Which is hardly true in the early hours of the morning, especially having gotten no sleep, right? Fifth reason. The Sanhedrin illegally convened to try a capital offense on a day before an annual Sabbath. The Mishnah reveals why, quote, they shall not judge on the eve of the Sabbath, nor on any festival, unquote. In Martyrdom of Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Isaac Wise, a Jewish rabbi, provides decisive evidence, quote, no court of justice in Israel, of course, he means within Jewry, was permitted to hold sessions on the Sabbath or on any of the seven biblical holy days, in cases of capital crime, no trial could be commenced on a Friday or the day, he means the day before the Sabbath, or, uh, uh, yeah, the day before the Sabbath, or the day previous to any holy day, because it was not lawful either to adjourn such cases longer than overnight, nor to continue them on the Sabbath or holy day, unquote. So again, here's an example of how the rabbis have lifted Mosaic law, and claim it for themselves. Jesus, however, was arrested on Passover evening in A.D. 30, again, he says 31, but I say 33, which is the day before the first day of unleavened bread, an annual holy day. Sixth reason. The trial concluded in the day. Again, reading from the Mishnah, we learn, quote, a criminal case resulting in the acquittal of the accused may terminate the same day on which the trial began. But if a sentence of death is to be pronounced, it cannot be concluded before the following day. Unquote. 
Forcing a trial to last longer than one day allows time for witnesses in support of the accused to come forth. Of course, Jesus' court did not want any such witnesses to manifest themselves, so they ended it quickly. So far, you have seen six reasons the trial of Jesus was illegal. In the May-June issue of The Pillar, we will examine six more. So this does this contain a link to part two? Apparently not. So let me go back to the search engine and see if I can find part two. Yes, here it is. Twelve reasons Jesus' trial was illegal. Part two. Let me copy this and put this in the chat room. Because, you know, there's people, Christians actually believe that the trial was legal. Because it was done by the Jews, right? Would the Jews do anything illegal? This is the way they think. They don't know any better. Okay, part two. Again, no indication of the year in which this article was written. In part one of the series, we examined six of the 12 reasons Jesus' trial was illegal. One, Jesus was arrested illegally. Two, he was examined by Annas in a secret night proceeding. Three, the indictment against him was false. Four, the Sanhedrin court illegally held its trial before sunrise. Five, the Sanhedrin illegally convened to try a capital offense on a day before an annual Sabbath. And six, the trial concluded in one day. We will now continue with the remaining six conclusive reasons. Seventh reason. In addition to the indictment against Jesus being false, it was used illegally. Jesus was indicted based on one statement with no supporting evidence. Here's what transpired. Two false witnesses testified that Jesus said, quote, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. That's Mark 14:58. This was used as the indictment against Jesus. However, it was false. Jesus never said this. Rather, he stated, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, unquote, John 2:19. Notice Jesus did not say, I will destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple, yeah, meaning them. If you destroy my body, it will be raised up again. Second, he did not say that that is made with hands or build another made without hands. These subtle differences completely changed the meaning of his statement. And the false witnesses knew this. They portrayed Jesus as planning to destroy the physical temple in Jerusalem. But this was far from the meaning of his words. Actually, he would destroy the temple eventually, right? but that's not what he meant. Jesus' statement in John 2.19 was a response to those who asked him to give him a sign, verse 18. He was not referring to the physical temple being destroyed. Rather, he was talking about his body that three days after he would be put to death, he would rise from the grave. By cunningly rephrasing his statement, the false witnesses were able to bring an indictment against Jesus, and the Jews are really good at putting words in our mouths. Next, the high priest arose and said to Jesus, Aren't you going to answer? Do you have anything to say about these charges? Jesus said nothing. Then the high priest exclaimed, 
I command you, in the name of the living God, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God, unquote. Well, yeah, I guess they did want to know, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, because if he said, yeah, well, oh my God, we got to kill him now. Jesus answered, quote, you have said correctly. Nevertheless, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God and coming in the clouds of heaven, unquote. Well, some of them just did see that. Immediately, the high priest tore his clothes and shouted, quote, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Ye are witnesses to his blasphemy. What do you all think? Unquote. He is deserving of death, everyone shouted in unison. Matthew 26, verses 62 through 66. Notice that the high priest's question was completely unrelated to the indictment brought by the false witness. Instead of condemning Jesus on the charge of supposedly threatening to destroy the temple and rebuild it three days later, the court condemned him on a separate charge that he claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus was indicted on one charge, tried on a separate charge, and condemned on his own testimony. Jewish scholar Maimonides has this to say, We have it as a fundamental principle of our jurisprudence that no one can bring an accusation against himself. Again, this is from the Bible. Should a man make confession of guilt before a legally constituted tribunal, such confession is not to be used against him unless properly attested by two other witnesses. Unquote. Sanhedrin 4, paragraph 2. Yet, Jesus was condemned on account of his personal testimony, which was supposedly blasphemous. Furthermore, the court failed to examine him to see whether his reference to being the Son of God could be considered blasphemy, right? No, somebody claims to be the Son of God? Pro- prove that he isn't. Max Radin, a former professor and author of the book The Trial of Jesus of Nazareth, reveals why Jesus' testimony was not blasphemous. Quote, The blasphemy which the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament, mentions is a literal cursing of God or a direct defiance of him. The only Pentateuchal reference makes this clear. It is in Leviticus chapter 24. And the incident which gives rise to the statute indicates the character of the offense of blasphemy in Mosaic law, not Jewish law. The half-Egyptian had cursed God as under the circumstances of the quarrel there described. He would have been likely enough to, to do. No such thing could have been charged against Jesus by his most inveterate enemies, unquote. So, okay, Leviticus 24, and uh, really he should have cited the exact verse here. Let me go to Leviticus 24 and see if I can find this real quick because this, uh, this is important. Okay, so... Let me scroll here. Bread of the tabernacle, punishment for blasphemy. Here it is, Leviticus 24.10. And the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel, and this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. Verse 11. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of Yahweh and cursed, and they brought him unto Moses, and his mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in ward, 
under arrest, that the mind of Yahweh might be showed them. <laughs> and Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, quote, Bring forth him that cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Okay, so bring forth all the witnesses. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whatsoever, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of Yahweh, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of Yahweh, shall be put to death. Okay, very good. Leviticus 24 10 through 16. All right, getting back to the text. So that's a good reference. Notice another violation of law. Uh, uh, quote, no attempt is ever made to lead a man into self-incrimination, <laughs> right? Not by uh, Mosaic law. But of course, the rabbis are, are wont to violate Mosaic law at every turn if it if it suits them. Moreover, a voluntary confession on his, the defendant's part, is not admitted in evidence and therefore not competent to convict him unless a legal number of witnesses minutely corroborate his self-accusation, unquote. This is from Mendelssohn, Criminal Jurisprudence of the Ancient Hebrews. Yet again, in Jesus' case, the court violated its own law. The Sanhedrin illegally used Jesus' own assertion that he is the Son of God as evidence against him. Eighth reason. The condemnation of Jesus was illegal because the merits of the defense were not considered. Immediately after hearing Jesus declare that he was the Son of God, the high priest shouted, quote, He has spoken blasphemy! Unquote. Of course, that's a lie because he did not blaspheme the name of Yahweh. He just claimed to be his son. That was it. There was no diligent inquiry to follow. This despite what is stated in the Mishnah, quote, the judges shall weigh the matter in the sincerity of their conscience, unquote. It should be apparent that this did not occur in the case of Jesus. The high priest and all present immediately formed an opinion. There was no further investigation to see if he did in fact blaspheme. In addition, the high priest tore his clothes during the trial, and this is recorded in Mark 14.63 and Matthew 26.65. But in Leviticus 21.10, we find that he is forbidden to do so, quote, And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes, unquote. Leviticus 10.6. Okay, so Leviticus 21.10 and Leviticus 10.6. Now, of course, these so-called judges being Edomites, they didn't give a damn about Mosaic law and probably weren't even familiar with it. The high priest tore his clothes to incite fury and prejudice in those present. He should have remained calm to avoid hampering the ability of others to render sound judgment. So it'd be like a, in a modern day trial, the judge gets really angry at the defendant and says all kinds of horrible things about him. That would certainly prejudice the jury, would it not? Put simply, a mob spirit condemned Jesus. 
Here's what Mendelssohn states concerning this type of procedure. Quote, A simultaneous and unanimous verdict of guilty rendered on the day of the trial has the effect of an acquittal. <laughs> Unquote. Okay. On the day of the trial. They have to wait at least one day, even according to Jewish law. The Mishnah indicates that the proper method of voting was, quote, for the judges, each in his turn, to absolve or condemn, unquote. The members of the Sanhedrin were seated in the form of a semicircle at the extremity of which a secretary was placed, whose business it was to record the votes. One of these secretaries recorded the votes in favor of the accused and the other against him. In the criminal code of the Jews... Philip Benny wrote, quote, In ordinary cases, the judges voted according to seniority, the oldest commencing. In a capital case, the reverse order was followed, that the younger members of the Sanhedrin should not be influenced by the views of the arguments of their mature, more experienced colleagues. The junior judge was in these cases always the first to pronounce for or against conviction, unquote. Clearly, none of this occurred at Jesus' current trial. Ninth reason, Jesus being condemned by only part of the Sanhedrin was illegal because those who would have voted against the guilty verdict were not present. We know that at least one member of the Sanhedrin during Jesus' trial was not present, Joseph of Arimathea. In Luke 23, we learn the following, and quote, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel indeed of them, he was of Arimathea, a city of the Judites, okay, or possibly Judeans, verses 50 and 51. Most Greek scholars agree that the word counselor refers to a member of the Sanhedrin. Interestingly, however, Joseph was not present during Jesus' trial. All who were there unanimously condemned him, but Luke states that Joseph had not consented to the council and deed of them, this means he was absent from the proceedings, which was illegal. In setting up a secret night meeting to try Jesus, those who wanted to put him to death ensured that his supporters would not be present to sidetrack their wicked intentions. Again, we ask the question, who killed Jesus? The Jews or the Romans? Okay, at this point, I need to take a break. So I'm going to uh, find a piece of music to play during my break here. And let's see what we have here. Okay, let me open up. I have to open up a different page here. And, oh, well, let's go to Battle Cry. I love this band. Today Belongs to Us is the name of the album. Okay. Why won't it open? <laughs> I have to double click on it. Okay. Break the spell. Break the spell that the Jews hold over us. And this is about five minutes. And I'll see you after start. <laughs>
yes, it would be wonderful if we could just break the spell that the Jews hold over us. It's quite amazing, ladies and gentlemen, that a group of deceivers, these uh, Talmudic rabbis, of course, combined with the power of their international bank, is what is uh, ruling the world. It's quite incredible that this has happened, but it has happened. That's what we're dealing with. And this is why your folk radio is here to try to break that spell. All right, so let's continue. With this, uh, by and large, I mean, this is a really good article because it p- points out the, the way in which the trial, so-called trial, was illegally held. Okay, so, ninth reason, Jesus being condemned by only part of the Sanhedrin was illegal because those who had a, <clears throat> voted against the guilty verdict were not present. We know that at least one member of the Sanhedrin during Jesus' was of Arimathea. <clears throat> okay, we covered that. And also consider that, quote, if none of the judges defend the culprit, for example, all pronounce him guilty, having not defender in the court, the verdict guilty was invalid and the sentence of death could not be executed, unquote. This is, uh, for, again, from the martyrdom of Jesus. So we wish the judges would actually abide by the law. Throughout history, uh, most most courts have been very unjust. Tenth reason. Jesus' sentence was illegally pronounced in a place forbidden by law. After being seized by a mob, Jesus was eventually brought to the high priest's house to be tried, Luke twenty two fifty four. Yet Jewish law, and certainly uh, Mosaic law, expressly forbids an individual from being tried anywhere but in the court. Notice what the Talmud states, quote, After leaving the hall, Gazit, to court, no sense of death can be passed upon anyone soever, unquote. Maimonides adds, quote, A sentence of death can be pronounced only so long as the Sanhedrin holds its sessions in the appointed place, unquote. This is Sanhedrin, chapter 14. Eleventh reason. Most members of the Sanhedrin were disqualified from legally trying Jesus. Well, they were all appointed by Rome anyway, and most of them were Edomites. Consider what Mendelssohn wrote in the Hebrew Maxims and Rules. Quote, The robe of the unfairly elected judge is to be respected not more than the blanket of the donkey. Unquote. In the Bible and the works of Jewish historian, uh, the Judahite historian Josephus, we find the names of many of those who served on the Sanhedrin during Jesus' time. According to Josephus, these men, Caiaphas, Matthias, Ishmael, Simon, John, Alexander, Ananias, among others, received bribes, bought their offices, and were appointed by those who should not have been on the court themselves. These things alone disqualified them. Also, there were 12 former high priests <coughs> serving on the Sanhedrin. The Bible, however, clearly requires that a man serve in this office throughout his entire lifetime. Only death would end this term. Contra and is hereditary <laughs> among Judahites. as a hereditary office. Nobody outside of Israel could appoint a high priest. Only death would end his term. 
Contrary to the biblical pattern, Roman law permitted high priests to be voted into office each year. Another reason the judges were disqualified is due to their status as enemies of the accused, quote, nor must there be on the judicial bench either a relation or a particular friend or an enemy of either the accused or the accuser, unquote, uh, Hebrew maxims and rules. This is corroborated by Philip Benny, quote, nor under any circumstances was a man to be at enmity with the accused person permitted to occupy a position among his judges, unquote. And this is from Criminal Code of the Jews. Yet those on the court were bitter enemies of Jesus and even bribed someone to betray him. So were there any Roman enemies? <laughs> any Romans who were enemies of Jesus present at his trial? I don't think so. Twelfth reason. The initial charge of blasphemy was illegally switched to sedition. <clears throat> In part one, we saw that though they had illegal, or sorry, had legal authority to execute him, which I disputed, the Sanhedrin decided to bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate on the charge of sedition. Initially, Jesus' opponents accused him of blasphemy. But since they were afraid of their fellow Judeans and did not want to execute him themselves, they needed to switch the charge to treason against the Roman government. They had to convince Judahites and Edomites. As we saw in Luke 23, quote, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King, unquote. Verse 2, that's Luke 23, 2. If the Sanhedrin had come to Pilate with the charge of blasphemy against Jesus, the governor would have told them to deal with him according to their law the case would have been dismissed. But since the Sanhedrin changed the charge to treason against the Roman government, Pilate was forced to listen to the case. In the end, after several attempts to let Jesus go and being threatened with possibly losing his position, John 19.12, Pilate reluctantly gave in to the mob's demands. Now here the author contradicts his statement in part one that uh, where he stated that Pilate only initially objected to the proceedings. No. Pilate <laughs> objected to the proceedings throughout. But he did reluctantly give in to the mob's demands. Interestingly, however, he did not render a formal decision. Notice Pilate's final words in the trial, quote, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. He actually declares him to be just. See you to it. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-four. And in the very next verse is the verse where his blood be upon us and our, and our people and us Jews. No judgment against Jesus was rendered. Pilate ended the trial by turning Jesus over to his soldiers to carry out the true motive of the Jewish leaders to have Jesus put to death on account of his supposed blasphemy, not sedition, John 19.7. And so finally the conclusion here of this article an innocent man condemned. Clearly, the entire trial of Jesus was a debacle, conducted illegally from start to finish. The facts are most plain. Put yourself in Jesus' place for a moment. Imagine being betrayed by someone you were close to. Well, he was not close to them. They were Edomites. Imagine facing a trial you know is a sham. Imagine being vehemently falsely accused. Imagine being spitefully treated by thrill-seeking soldiers. Imagine enduring a fierce scorn and ridicule from ignorant people. Then imagine facing one of the worst forms of execution mankind has ever devised. 
All this despite being completely innocent. I can, I can imagine that. A man who had never sinned was unjustly sentenced to death for crimes he did not commit. He was condemned by a mob as a criminal, ironically by those who could themselves be considered criminals. Exclamation point. Consider and never forget that Jesus voluntarily endured the severe injustice to pay the penalty for Israel's sins. He says your sins, but only Israel's sins. So by and large, a decent, uh, uh, the legal uh, facts brought into play in this article are very excellent. But the universalism of the author uh, is a detraction from the article. So now I'm going to switch to this booklet, The Inquisition and Crucifixion of Jesus and Nazarene, a critical legal commentary by Fraser Marx, dated 1997. Preface. And this person is identity, so we're going to get a, a much better perspective than we did from this Judeo-Christian. As a young man growing up in the multi-ethnic city of Baltimore, I had no reason to consider differences in race, religion, or nationality in my selection of friends, so I didn't. However, having spent the last 26 years living in multi-ethnic South Florida, I have met others to whom my differing race, religion, and nationality does, in fact, seem to make a difference. For example, Cuban Americans in Miami now habitually draw a racial distinction between their Hispanic birth and mine by referring to me as an Anglo, meaning Anglo-Saxon. A Harvard-educated Jewish lawyer from Fort Lauderdale responded to my faith in the power of prayer to Jesus Christ by hatefully dismissing me with the palm of his hand and proclaiming, you goyim are all alike, unquote. I only later learned that he had, in fact, slurred my race and religion. This same lawyer thereafter in front of another demeaned my nationality by bragging about he had firebombed cities of my German ancestors during World War II as though I were a surviving member of Hitler's army. I have seen of late subtle but recurring, a subtle but recurring theme in entertainment and news media which teaches that whites should be apologetic to blacks for the conduct of their white ancestors here in America. By now, you're asking what does this topic have to do with the brutal execution of an Israelite man from Galilee by Idumean men from Judea? Well, as it seems, everything. Okay, now we're getting a true perspective of what's going on. You have to know the racial connotations and the racial origins of the Sanhedrin and the fact that Yahshua was an Israelite and the Sanhedrin was composed primarily of appointees by Herod and the Romans. Having learned later in my life that racial differences do matter to those who seem to dislike white Christian or German, German Americans, I was conscious of differences in race, religion, and nationality as I searched ancient history and the Bible for some rationale to the seemingly irrational execution of an otherwise peaceful itinerant preacher. Mind you, I had already asked various denominational Christian ministers why the first century Judean government executed Jesus. I never received a logical answer. Some fell back to a simplistic, the Jews did it, unquote, without ever explaining who these Jews were. These were the same ministers who, in the next breath, assured me that Jesus himself was indeed a Jew, 
It never made any sense to me that so-called Jews who do not seem to particularly like Christians would kill one of their own sons in order to save the so-called Gentiles, non-Jews, from the fires of hell. Yeah, there's no Jew that's interested in that. Others told me he committed sedition against Rome, so the Romans crucified him. My Bible teaches me that Pilate never even indicted Jesus for sedition and refused when pressed to use Roman soldiers to crucify Jesus. Still others told me that Jesus blasphemed the name of God. My Bible tells me that ethnically, or racially, Jesus was an Israelite and therefore had an absolute right to refer to himself as a son of God. So I searched recorded history as well as the Bible to help me find the truth find some relationship between secular history and biblical history, which would tell me who these men were and why they treated Jesus so brutally. What I discovered came as a shock. History and the Bible teach us that certain obscure political appointees named Annas and Caiaphas, men of the Idumean or other non-Israelitish race, condemned Jesus, a man of the Israelite race, for blaspheming the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was not their their God either. I found this rather hypocritical, given the fact that the God of Jacob, father of the Israelite race, had cursed Esau Edom, the father of the Idumean race, because Esau, unlike his brother Jacob, had willfully rejected his heritage in the covenant between God and his grandfather, Abraham. Well said. See what a dramatic difference there is between the identity perspective and the Judeo perspective? Careful analysis of these events shows that the confrontation between Caiaphas and Jesus began centuries before as a sibling rivalry between Esau and Jacob, while they were still in their mother's womb. This conflict manifested itself centuries later in as clear a case of prosecutorial, prosecutorial misconduct and gross abuse of government power as yet seen in recorded legal history. We see it all the time today. As you read my commentary on these proceedings, please take time to read the footnotes and your own Bibles and decide for yourselves whether or not my understanding is supportable. I do not claim to have all the answers. As David put it, let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head, unquote. Psalm 141.5. Whoa, well, that that can't be applied to a Jew because the Talmud says to slap a Jew is to like slap the face, slapping the face of God. Fraser Marks, Attorney at Law. Oh, dedication. This book is dedicated to Jesus of Nazareth and to the following recent victims of abuse of government power. Mrs. Vicki Weaver, Mr. Samuel Weaver, and 17 Christian children at Mount Carmel Church, Waco, Texas. Introduction. He was young, tall, handsome, and though humble, possessed a faint image of nobility. And this is a, it's got a footnote, which there are numerous footnotes in this book, so I won't bother with those. Continuing. He was outspoken and controversial, quite willing to expose the hypocrisy of the Judean spiritual leaders of his day. He publicly condemned the subversion of the word of Yahweh, Mosaic law, by these self-styled priests, in quotes, judges, who were masquerading as the Levitical order of the Aaronic priesthood of ancient Israel. 
We will examine some biblical truth about Israel in a few minutes. He healed the lame, the blind, and the sick. He even restored life to his close friend Lazarus. He knew how to get the attention of others, and his message was not popular among the Idumean Judean governing class of the first century Judea. We will also examine some Bible truth about Edom or Idumea in a few minutes. His message to this Idumean ruling class was devastating. Permit me to paraphrase the scriptures. Quote, I have come in fulfillment of my father's promise to his covenantal Israel to establish my dominion on earth with them at my side. My credentials speak for themselves. Unquote. Growing, uh, of course, this is a paraphrase. Growing numbers of Israelitish people from Judea in the south to, to Galilee in the north were beginning to believe this humble itinerant preacher from the little backwoods town of Nazareth, Galilee. This man had to be taken seriously by the Idumean ruling elite in first century Jerusalem, Judea. He was also a soft-spoken and peaceful man. He was a man of few words, not given to vain rhetoric or news speak. He was not a wimp, however. <laughs> the Gospels record his only act of violence against society, his only act of violence in recorded history. He went to a place which had been dedicated to the worship of his heavenly father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and discovered that a group of Judean merchants had set up shop on the premises. The Gospels reveal that these merchants were friends of the powerful Idumean Judeans who control a self-styled theocratic shadow government in the Roman-occupied Judea. This government pretended to mirror the theocratic dominions of ancient Levitical Israel, complete with nominal Pharisees, that is, ministers, scribes, lawyers, and chief priests, senior judges. Be patient. I will clarify the historical meaning of these terms in a few minutes. Again, absolutely precise language here. A theocratic shadow government. From his understanding of Mosaic law, this spectacle was an abomination to his father and simply more than he could bear. He became furious. He threw their tables of coin and merchandise in their faces and then, still in a fury, proceeded to lash at them with a handmade whip until they fled the premises. The Gospels record that he screamed, Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Unquote. Yeah, and they have made merchandise of us as well. His talk was now turning into action. This out-of-state country lad could not be dismissed as a harmless daydreamer. He must be dealt with somehow. Within a matter of days, these same self-styled chief priests charged him with the crimes of sedition against Rome and Judea under Roman law and blasphemy against the God of Abraham under their self-serving and perverted construction of Mosaic law. Both sedition and blasphemy were capital offenses. The Gospels further reveal that these chief priests merely paid lip service to prevailing criminal jurisprudence in the ensuing proceedings. This was nothing new, as Jesus himself had proclaimed to their faces that their habit of subverting the written word by their oral amendments, traditions, was the work of Satan. Okay, this is stated several times in the scriptures. Since the record shows that their attempts to indict him for sedition against Rome or Judea met with failure, he was condemned to death by these hypocrites upon nothing more than his own profession of kinship with the God of Abraham. 
as was his right by inheritance of the Abrahamic covenant through Abraham's grandson Jacob. As the Roman government had stripped these chief priests of any authority to impose a sentence of death in order to get him nailed to a tree, they and their Pharisee cronies, skilled at manipulating public opinion, (laughs) sound like something going on today, folks, incited a demonstrating mob of rabble as Pilate called them to not after to riot after the Roman governor had acquitted Jesus of sedition against Rome on two separate occasions, and after Herod the great son, Herod Antipas, Antipas, governor of Galilee, had refused to indict him for sedition against Galilee. Pilate turned Jesus over to the Idumean Judean politicians who hated him after these men threatened to accuse Pilate of treason against Rome. When they demanded that Pilate crucify him, Pilate screamed back, See to that yourselves, thereafter symbolically washing his hands of the matter. By the way, the hand-washing ritual is biblical. Somehow Pilate was familiar with that. His back was ruthlessly skinned alive with a Roman scourge, multiple leather whips embedded with sharp fragments of bone and rock. And his scalp was punctured with nail-sharp thorns. His enemies then literally nailed his arms and feet to a timber gallows. This all occurred within 12 short hours of his being abducted in the middle of the night from a public park where he was quietly resting in prayer. This at the hands of an armed mob of government agents. This would have to be Jewish agents, not Roman agents, who had sold their loyalty to an Idumean political appointee named Caiaphas. Neither recorded history nor recorded scripture shows, to my satisfaction, that he was lawfully arrested and convicted of sedition under Roman law or blasphemy against the God of Abraham under Mosaic law. How could this happen? Well, it's happening again today, folks. It's called the Great Reset. The Idumeans have tried us, the true Israelites of the world, and have condemned us to death using COVID as their instrument of torture. Biblical history of first century Judea. From my study of history and scripture, I have concluded that this insult to civilized criminal justice was motivated by political expediency. In essence, it was a preemptive political assassination by ancient enemies of the descendants of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, the very enemies of God himself. Their hatred for Jesus, an Israelite descended from Jacob, had been nurtured during 2,000-year history of enmity between the families of Jacob and those of his fraternal twin brother, Esau. I discovered numerous violations of prevailing rules of criminal procedure, and I will discuss those in a few minutes. First, we have to permit the Bible and history to give us some background on the people, their religion, and their politics in first century Judea. I have already characterized certain people and places using terms that may need some clarification for some of you. Just as we today characterize people on the basis of race, creed, and national origin, those living and working in first century Roman-occupied Judea did the same, often using these terms interchangeably when speaking of the same person or group of persons. Every day we define people by race, such as white or black, by creed, such as Christian or Jew, and by national origin, such as an American or an Irish. We often combine these defining terms in a variety of ways to more particularly identify a person, such as an Irish-American or a, a Jewish-American. I think you see my point. 
Let's briefly look at some genealogy and history to help us personalize the racial, religious, and national origins of the multicultural society of first century Jerusalem, Judea. I love when the truth is spoken plainly. Roughly 2,200 years before Christ, God promised Abraham, a Chaldean descendant of Shem, one of Noah's three sons, that he personally would guide the the lives of Abraham, his family, and his descendants, if they would but observe his fundamental rules for living, which indeed had been passed down for centuries through Abraham's Adamic ancestors. In fact, this covenant between God and Abraham was to extend to countless millions of Abraham's descendants. When properly viewed as an inheritance, the value of God's promise to Abraham and his descendants is priceless. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, traveled northwestward from the land of the Chaldeans to the Mediterranean shores of the Middle Eastern land of Canaan. And and there they started their family. They bore a son, an heir of the covenant, naming him Isaac. In time, Isaac also took a wife named Rebekah. After Isaac and Rebekah conceived the child, she experienced turmoil in her womb. She received a remarkable revelation from the God of Abraham. God revealed to Rebekah that she was carrying twins and the turmoil resulted from a struggle between the two which would extend beyond their birth to their descendants who would become so countless as to form two separate and identifiable nations and would result ultimately from a racial difference in their descendants or from the fact that Esau married into the race of Canaanites bearing, of course, the seed of Cain himself. The twins were not identical, merely fraternal. The firstborn, the elder, Rebekah, named Esau, and the second, the younger, she named Jacob. The Bible records that the sibling struggle that began in Rebekah's womb would continue as these two boys grew to become adults. Let us compare the lives of these two young men. The Bible and related Apocrypha reveal that Esau constantly rebelled against the authority of his father, while Jacob was obedient and sought after the teachings of God, passed through generations which even predated his grandfather, Abraham. The teachings he was referring to. Indeed, these two young men were two different manners of person. Esau spent little time at home, seeking trophies in wild game and material gain, while Jacob was content to tend his family's crops and flock of sheep. The Bible further records that Esau cared nothing for his birthright, to the Abrahamic covenant as the firstborn son of Isaac, even despising his birthright. I realize that this is a strong term to use, but this is how the Bible records Esau's attitude toward his own heritage. Let me give you some additional background. Yeah, and nobody outside of identity ever brings this up, that Esau despised his birthright. One day, when Esau arrived home with nothing to show for a day of hunting and was starving for a good meal, He came to Jacob begging for a share of his food. Jacob may have been meek, but he was no fool. Jacob treasured his heritage as Abraham's grandson and would have been honored to become a direct lineal heir of God's covenant with Abraham upon Isaac's death. Genesis 25 records that Esau was quite willing to put the immediate lust of his palate ahead of his ancestral birthright. So he sold his birthright as firstborn to his brother Jacob, for nothing more than a bowl of hearty red lentil soup. Thereafter, God changed Esau's name to Edom. 
Edom means the color red in the Hebrew language, and apparently those are red lentils as well. Genesis 27 records how Rebekah thereafter assisted her son Jacob in going to Isaac's deathbed to receive the birthright sold to him by his brother Esau. The very same promise that God had graciously given his grandfather Abraham. When Esau Edom learned that his father Isaac had given the blessing of God to his brother Jacob, he hated Jacob and plotted to kill his brother in order to recover the blessing for himself and his descendants. Esau was not a forgiving man. He even told his own son to kill his uncle. Esau was a designing and deceitful man. Oh, just like Nahash in the Bible, right? As for Jacob, he didn't hate Esau. Rather, he feared his brother. The Bible records another interesting fact about Esau Edom. Esau not only despised his spiritual or religious heritage, he despised his ethnic racial, racial heritage as well. We see this by his concept of family values. His parents warned him not to participate in interracial marriage, demanding that he continue the family tree of his grandfather Abraham through the lineal descendants of Noah's son Shem, the Shemitic race. He spitefully ignored their pleas, taking women from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Ishmaelite daughters of Ishmael, progenitor of the Arabic races of people, the Hivites and the Horites. Esau was a lustful man. These interracial marriages were a grief of mind to his Shemitic parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Over the centuries, the multitude of Esau's lineal descendants grew to a huge, separate, multiracial nation of people, thereby fulfilling God's prophecy to Rebekah at Genesis 22, sorry, 25, verses 22 to 23, Esau's family line became as far removed from the physical line of Jacob as, let's say, a wolf is from a lamb. Esau's descendants came to be known as Edomites or simply Edom. They eventually grew so large a number that God gave these Edomites a land of their own, southeast of the land of Canaan, called Mount Seir in certain Bible verses. Later Bible verses translate this as land of Edom or simply Idumea. Turn with me to the maps in the back of your Bibles. At map 3, quote, the 12 tribes in Canaan, unquote, you will see Edom lying southeast of the land of Judah. At map 5, Palestine, in the time of Jesus, you will see this land being referred to as Idumea. Jacob, on the other hand, behaved quite differently from his brother Esau. He obeyed his parents and married into his own Shemitic race, Genesis 28, verses 6 to 7. The God of his grandfather Abraham rewarded Jacob's obedience and respect for his covenantal heritage. Accordingly, Genesis 28 and 35 record that God also spoke to Jacob and ratified the covenant he had made with his grandfather, Abraham. To seal this covenant, God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. Hebrew, he will rule with God. Strunk Cornets number 3478. Simply put, God commissioned Israel and his descendants to be his representatives on earth. God also told Jacob that his descendants would remain racially distinct and identifiable for countless generations to come. Quote, A nation and companies of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. In fact, the Bible tells us that this Israelite race of people would become too numerous to count. To be sure, we understand God uses a metaphor. 
we are told that the Israelite race would become as innumerable as the dust of the earth and that they would have to leave the land of Canaan and migrate to the four corners of the entire earth. Therefore, to fulfill God's mission for them, God planned to use his people Israel and them alone to bring his very own blessings to all other families of the world. Quote, in you, Jacob, and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed, Genesis twenty-eight fourteen. 14, uh, also according to Deuteronomy 14, 14, 2, and Amos 3, 1 through 2. Over the centuries, Jacob's Israel's uh, 12 sons soon grew into 12 tribes and then into 12 separate nations to continue as a select race of people before God forever. That is correct, forever. But the Jews deny that all 12 tribes still exist. They claim to be the one and only tribe of Judah, which we know is just another one of their lies. Scripture teaches that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob eventually put his promise to Jacob in writing, albeit many centuries later. In what became known as the Mosaic Covenant, God promised the Israelite people whom he had liberated from Pharaoh's tyranny that they would be his own possession among all the peoples of the earth, if they would but obey my voice. When Moses presented the word and word of God to the congregation of jubilant Israel, their spoken promise is recorded in Exodus 19.8, And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. Unquote. Thus Israel voluntarily entered into a covenant or contract with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Naturally, God took them at their word. <laughs> he takes our word seriously as he does his own and continued to guide and protect his special people as they followed Moses back to the land promised to their patriarch, Jacob Israel. Having led his people out of Egyptian bondage, the God of Jacob now led them into the ancient land of Canaan, Ham's grandson. Uh, actually, we know Canaan was actually Ham's son by his own mother, so there was incest involved. Uh, and continuing, even with God's help, it took these Israelites 400 years to conquer the seven nations which occupied the territory. Eventually, the land of Canaan was divided among the various families according to their lineage from Jacob, Jacob Israel's 12 sons. Although modern-day Antichrist teaching spurns the notion of racial purity, these early Israelitish people could trace their genealogy back for centuries, uninterrupted by race mixing, absolutely. Thus, the spiritual inheritance which Jacob had purchased from Esau with nothing more than a bowl of lentil soup became a physical inheritance totaling millions of square miles of rich, fertile land together with immeasurable mineral and cattle wealth. Jacob was meek, but he was no fool. Sadly, this glorious relationship between God and his people didn't last. Had God ignored his end of the bargain? Of course not. Bible history sadly reveals that the nation of Israel failed to heed its part of the covenant. Over the centuries after conquering the land of Canaan, Israel would become separated from God and delivered to his enemies on account of his refusal to obey either the inner voice of God or his word, which by now had been codified by Moses' family and the prophets. After King Solomon's death in 925 B.C., the United Commonwealth of Israel split over the issue of excess taxation into a northern kingdom simply called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. 
both of which were eventually scattered throughout the entire world after deportation at the hands of their respective enemies. And he refers to map number four, the divided kingdoms, Judah and Israel. Not to fear, God still loved his disobedient sons. Centuries later, he again ratified his covenant with the seed of Jacob Israel. He called this, quote, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Again, all 12 tribes. This time, the covenant wasn't written in stone. It was written on the hearts of Israel. Thus, descendants of Israel could no longer plead ignorance of the law. Find those with a conscience of God's law, and you will find Israel. The Apostle Paul, an Israelite through the line of Jacob's son Benjamin, takes pains to remind those of his race, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, that the covenants which I discussed earlier belong to Israel and to Israel alone. Paul's reminder to the early Roman church is obviously in harmony with the proclamation of Jesus of Nazareth, an Israelite by birth, who removed all doubt as to whom the new covenant was given, when he stated unequivocally, quote, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, unquote. These words of Jesus fulfilled it the prophecy of Ezekiel centuries before that God would send his own son to the house of Israel. For as God also spoke through the prophets Amos, prophet Amos, sons of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. It is interesting here to simply note the following prophecy concerning Israel's future place in world history. There was to come a time after the crucifixion when scriptural racial Israel would become blind to his racial identity, Isaiah 29, verses 9 through 14, etc., and be swallowed up into another, into other nations of the earth. And he cites numerous examples here, but we're running out of time. All right, I perceive, and I've read this book before, a long time ago, that... Uh, I could indeed do another show just on this. But I think uh, it's this is worthy of an audio book. And with the footnotes before me so that I could read the footnotes and the, uh, the testimony of Scripture. And there's a couple of things I need to delete here as well. This is obviously the author is non-seedline. But uh, in general, the argument is very good. So I'll probably have to read through this again and delete the non-seed line arguments here. So, so I will put this on my list of audiobooks to accomplish before I leave this planet, which uh, the sooner the better, or the second coming. Whichever comes first, <laughs> the sooner the better. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the admonition. This has been the lesson of the Inquisition and crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth by the Jews. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the admonition. See you all again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>